hello everyone, I'm Luke, and welcome from wherever you are. Here we are in November, less than seven weeks from Christmas. And it's to the point now where if you're looking for a conversation starter, you could probably just say, 2020, huh? And you'd be off and running. You'd have plenty to talk about. And of course, everybody's talking about one thing in particular this week, and we'll get to that in a moment. But first, there was a uniquely 2020 scene from the sports world that got me thinking, and that's an empty stadium, right? Like, this, this is the norm now. The Ravens and the Steelers last week, you got this heated rivalry, M&T Bank Stadium, and, and it's so weird. Like, when you think about the Steelers driving toward the end zone, you, you want them going into a, a wall of screaming crazies, right? Thousands upon thousands, hollering and clapping and banging and stomping, trying to disrupt the offense, throw them off their game, make it difficult for them to communicate. But it's just cardboard cutouts that don't make any noise. I remember playing in high school in a, in a gym full of just 2,000 people, but it was totally full, like one of those gyms where the, the bleachers just go up to the rafters. You're, you're sitting at the top where you just stick your gum right up there on the ceiling. And it was a sub-state final, and nobody sat down the entire game. We had to create hand signals to communicate plays. You can't hear anything, can't hear the whistle blow, can't hear the coach from the sidelines. Just non-stop, roaring intensity, ebbing and flowing from loud to louder. Whole gym is shaking, the band's bass drum is vibrating in your chest, thousands of voices all shouting at the same time, all aimed at you. Now, no stadium or gym in the country right now is like that because it's 2020. But because it's 2020, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of us have felt as if we're living through a similar kind of intensity, especially as the political competition came to its crescendo this week. And sure, we think of the candidates squaring off, but like it or not, we, we found ourselves as players in this game, given the opportunity, charged with the responsibility to, to battle for the soul of the nation, we're told. And the contest does not unfold in the midst of mute cardboard cutouts. No, there are thousands upon thousands of voices all hollering and clamoring to be heard, some of them around your dinner table, in your social media feeds, the cheers and the jeers all mixed together. There's just so much noise, an imposing wall of opinions, all being shouted, all aimed at you, it seems. Here's what you need to do. Here's everything you need to know. Here's what's true. Here's what's a lie. Here's how you need to vote. The, the pressure's on. Our future's at stake. You can feel the constant drum beat in your chest. I remember going into the locker room at halftime of that game, and it was a retreat, a respite from all the noise. If you've ever been in a situation like that, uh, even coming out of a concert, maybe, you, you need some space to just let your senses decompress, reorient a little bit, collect your thoughts, regain composure. And in a sports context, anyway, you, you establish some clarity about how we're going to approach the next part of the game. It seems like we could use a moment like that today. Because even though stadiums and gyms around the country are quiet, we are everywhere reminded of the battles and the tensions and the pressures and the threats that ratchet up the intensity in an often disruptive and disorienting way. And it can be hard to keep our wits about us and live with clarity and poise amidst the noise. You know, thinking about that uh, halftime analogy when, when the outcome of the game is not yet decided, uh, it's actually pretty fitting because I just got to tell you that as of the time of this filming, we do not yet know the outcome of the, of the election, <laughs> uh, nor do we know the nature of all the potential responses to that outcome. Uh, you know, it's tough because I wrote, you know, one message for if Trump wins, one message for if Biden wins, and then one for if it was uncertain. Uh, I'm kidding, uh, no. But it is uh, true that there may be some things that are clear by this weekend that simply aren't known at noon on Thursday. 
Um, nevertheless, I'm, I'm hopeful and confident that we can still find the clarity that we seek, regardless of which way it goes. And that, that sports imagery, imagery, it probably helps remind us that, uh, you know, there are some who, who are participating with this right now that, that feel like winners, that the presidential election, it did. It, go, it went in the way that you wanted it to go. And so this was a good week for you. Your spirits are high, maybe. Your outlook is optimistic. This is a praise God kind of a day. And if that's you, hey, just raise your hand. Like, we're not all in church together, so you, you can't be outed. You're just in your living room or in your car or wherever. <laughs> uh, but but if, you're, if you're engaging with the comments, let's actually not express that kind of thing there. Just continue to listen. And the same for you if you're on the opposite end. If it feels like you lost. Obviously, many are on that side as well. This, this was not the week that you were hoping it would be. And, and the future seems much darker in your eyes. You're more fearful and unsettled, maybe. And you, you see this as more of a God help us kind of a day. And we, we probably range in the extremes on either side. Maybe the largest group, though, from both sides are those who are just exhausted with the whole thing. Like, is it over yet? Can we just be done with all this? Move on to something else. Maybe you're, you're even like, oh, my, ch my church is doing this. My church is talking about this again. And yeah, we, we are. We're seeking some perspective here, as we've done all through this, this fall season, because we recognize this as a critical time to, to separate the church from hate to distinguish the church and its founder, Jesus, from the typical political discourse of the day. And as we've said, we believe that doing that will mean we've got to remember our identity. You know, if this were a halftime locker room talk, we'd be saying, now everybody remember, we're on the same team here. We've got to behave with civility, demonstrate humility, strive for unity, and be known for charity and love. There's a whole set of teachings on our website if you missed them. And now one further word for, for this moment, whether, whether you're riding high or you're feeling as if the game is already lost, whether you're energized or depleted, winning or losing, confident or fearful, the most important thing we can all do is look to God for the ability to live with clarity. Live with clarity. Because life goes on. We, we live on with the pressures and tensions and, and problems in our country and in the world. We live and work and seek the best for the situation in which we find ourselves. And for us, for those who say they follow Jesus or who might want to, our confidence and hope in moving forward comes from the clarity that God provides. Cutting through the cacophony of voices and the wall of opinions surrounding us, we're trying to live with clarity. How do we do that? I think our, our best chance, if, if you'll follow me here, is, is to start at the end and then go back to the beginning and then meet in the middle. And it'll, it'll be important to hang on the whole way because, wow, you know, we, we are in the middle of it. First, the end. Now, this is important. Uh, yeah, many of us are wondering, you know, where, where is America headed? What's in store for the future? America's fate is unclear to me. Uh, politicians and pundits will make their promises and predictions. Uh, speculate some other time if you want to. But right now is a time to look with godly perspective toward what's ahead. And sometimes we're stifled when we do this because uh, within Christian circles, and I think for a lot of people, there is a picture of the end that many people believe the Bible paints that has often got in the way of the picture the Bible actually wants us to see. What I mean is, we've come to think of the end of this thing we're doing here called life as being us floating off to heaven. Like, that's the goal for us individuals. And then, as for the world, well, there, there's some spooky stuff in store for it. You know, Revelation and all, the end of the world is going to burn up. And 
But no worries, if you're on the good side, you can make your cloud get away and enjoy eternity playing a harp or something. This mindset often makes one be, be guilty of being so heavenly minded as to be of no earthly good. The earth and what happens on it and to it doesn't really matter after all. We'll just hold on to Jesus for our great escape into the sweet by and by. This mindset also has no resemblance to what the Bible actually teaches. Again, it often gets in the way of what the Bible teaches, what the Bible is so desperate for us to have a clear picture of. So, to be clear, Jesus' followers do, based on the brilliant clarity God teaches through God's word, we do believe that there is an end to this thing we're doing called life, and for the world too, that history is going somewhere. It's moving on an intentional trajectory toward a goal. It's not just an endless cycle. It's not aimless and meaningless, but, th but there is a destination. And from ages past, the, the picture was projected out. Like, uh, listen, listen to the way God describes it in Isaiah chapter 65. And he, and he says, see, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives just a few days or an old man who doesn't live out his years. No, my people will build houses and they will get to live in them. They will plant vineyards and they will eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses only to have someone else occupy them or plant only to have someone else come and eat the fruit. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord. Even further, the, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. It's, it's just one of many uh, poetic attempts to capture what the Creator intends for this broken and painful place. It sounds too good to be true. You'd never put up with a politician making a speech like that. I mean, who could be so bold to say that? But these are our deep and basic longings for this life. Broken hearts mended, grieving to cease, work to be fruitful, life to flourish, war to end. All uh, similar to other pictures in Isaiah as well, like weapons being reshaped into farming tools, justice being done, oppression undone, wrongs set right, God's comfort and presence with God's people, all nations gathering to the Lord, the true King. This, this is the vision. And don't, don't be spooked by Revelation and miss how it also poetically picks up this same kind of imagery to make clear the message. The, the point is not for us to go to heaven, but heaven comes to earth and God remakes it. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, Revelation 22. Water of life to all who are thirsty. Evil is defeated. Those serving God are reigning over everything that's been made new. So let's be clear. We care very much about what happens on the earth. We don't withdraw. We don't fatalistically disengage. No, we're, we're attentive to a world that is groaning in pain right now. To, to the, the poignant and practical realities like Isaiah addressed. Mothers whose children are dying too young. We attend to the, to the weak and vulnerable, to the old and lonely, to the wounded and broken. And, get this, we are active now in sowing seeds of the future we're trusting God to bring about. 
In light of the fact that God will draw people to himself from all nations, we commit to practices of reconciliation now. In light of God's coming to dwell with, with all who have turned their backs on him, but who have opened the door at his knock, we love our enemies and those who have turned their backs on us now. The, the streets are going to be paved with gold in the new creation. So, so we learn to share whatever, whatever supposed wealth we have now. Every marriage commitment enduring now through the hard stuff testifies to the God who will remain faithful to his faithless bride to the end. Every greedy, lustful, prideful impulse that we renounce now in exchange for mercy and kindness and humility and self-control is a sparkling glimpse of how God's people will reign with God in the new creation. We boldly and painstakingly and patiently live now in light of that future. No matter what any political candidate promises, no matter what any loud and large number of people shout about what's going to save the soul of our society, our hope rests with and our behavior is shaped by the God who declares, behold, I am making all things new. That's the end. Clarity about the end helps us live with clarity now. Let's go back to the beginning. And I should clarify, I guess I don't mean all the way back to the beginning, I mean the beginning of the Jesus part. The rest is important, but for now, pick up with the Jesus part. We're about to celebrate at Christmas, the moment in history when a poor couple from Palestine had a baby out of wedlock. And it was Jesus. It didn't look like much. But when Jesus grew up and he began his work, while it was not from a place of wielding influence through public office, uh, it was public, and it was influential. In other words, Jesus did not just come to say, I give you inner peace or spiritual enlightenment or some comforting ideas about the afterlife that you can hold in your heart privately. No, he said, something's happening in the world right now. The world is different now because I'm here. To explain, uh, for people who were familiar with all that Isaiah stuff, Jesus picked up the scroll of Isaiah and he read the part where it said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus said to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Those visions of the end of history, those vivid pictures of healing and freedom and justice are beginning to happen now through me, Jesus said. The restoration and the peace that the world longs for, that all of us desperately want, is now being initiated with me and, and my work. Another way of saying the same thing is how Mark records Jesus. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The, the glorious end of history is now invading the present. Not through political will or military might, but through me. The healings and the driving out evil and the forgiveness and the compassion and the sacrificial love all point to that. And of course, the biggest pointer came at the culmination of Jesus' earthly life when he pointed to himself and said, touch my resurrected body, the body I laid down for you. I was dead and now I'm alive again. 
Here is new creation. It has begun in me and through me. This is the deposit on the promise of the renewal that God will bring. It's starting now. So then, how do you respond to that? Jesus says, repent. Not just be sorry for the bad stuff you've done, although sure, but but turn. Turn away from any lesser vision of life, any lesser hope, and, and believe. Not just agree with statements, but entrust yourself to me and to my way. Live like I do. Love like I do. Sacrifice like I do. Resist evil like I do. Elevate others like I do. Include outsiders like I do. Forgive like I do. Bring healing like I do. Even suffer like I do, for it will not be in vain. This is how the Jesus movement began. With people who said, Amen. And it began amidst the most dominant government empire the world had ever seen, the Romans. And Jesus was not saying governments don't matter or that they don't have a role to play in the world, but he did make a couple things clear. Number one, the agenda that God has for the world, the desires that God has for each one of us, they outshine and outpace anything that a political leader might print in their brochure or proclaim from the stage or promise to us. And number two, the way to new creation isn't through popular vote or political control or taking up arms or or coercing or dominating or any of the ways that we typically think things get done in the world. Rather, it comes through sacrificial love in the name of Jesus. An empty tomb was God's attempt to make it clear the end of history has begun in Jesus. And with that clarity, we can know something about how we live in the middle. Because that's where we are. According to the New Testament writer Paul, uh, when you're in the middle, plodding through the nitty-gritty of life, waiting for God's future to come into focus, there remains faith, hope, and love. Uh, Kirkland's probably sells a plaque with those words stenciled on it, right? But they're more than decoration. They teach us about living with clarity in the middle, and they'll guide us home today. Uh, faith. We've got to keep faith. We're people of faith. Or, or you might be wondering if you want to be. And, and it's not just a faith, a g- generic faith, but no, the faith, a distinct belief and a commitment to a specific story that begins and ends like we've described. There are other stories competing narratives about what this thing is all about. But, but this is our story. And so we rehearse it. We retell it. We call it to mind. That's why we do this thing. That's why we gather every week, digitally or physically, during a pandemic or a, you know, when it's not a pandemic, whenever that looks like or whatever that's going to be someday. <laughs> we keep the habit of reminding ourselves what's true and what's real. Because everywhere we turn, we are confronted with voices that want to cloud our mind and and give us other ideas, sell us other ideas about what's true and what's most important. Yeah, like a raucous crowd making noise and trying to get us off our game, taunting us. So we regroup 
in the midst of, of a tiring run and maybe even a scary time for some of us, we refocus on what we're about and what matters most. We dare to proclaim that whether the outcome of the election is decided or uncertain, our faith remains because it's not bound up in a candidate, but in the world's true king who is bringing about the world that we all want. Now, human governments may be used in service to this or, or stand in opposition to it, but, but either way, God will accomplish God's purpose. This is the conviction of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And, and he acknowledged, he said, you know, evil may shape events in such a way that Caesar will occupy a palace and Christ a cross. But that same Christ will rise up and split history into A.D. and B.C. so that even the life of Caesar must be dated by his name. Yes, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Now, it's only his faith in the Jesus story that leads him to say this. He's calling this story to mind because he's confident about where it's going. This is not blind belief in progress. It's not determinism or, or passivity, like, oh, there's nothing we can do. It'll all work out in the end, so what's the use? No, no, no. It's a robust, distinctly Christian faith that says God's throne is an occupied seat. God's future is sure, and God's way requires great labor and perseverance and grit and willingness to suffer and promises as well deep joy and gladness and rich relationships and profound meaning as we partner together in the present as witnesses to the end of history. Faith. Keep it. Hope. Don't misplace it. Let's be clear, a Christian doesn't need to devalue or demean our country or those who lead it or who have fought for it or those who participate in the political process that sustains its legacy. But at the same time, we have to be able to say, America is not the hope of the world because no nation can be the hope of the world. No political machinery, however great it's being run, however much progress it stimulates, can bring about the goal of history, namely the purposes of the Creator God. Now, we can have hopes that our policies would be fair, that our politicians would be honest, that there'd be less uh, partisan hostility, that our government would contribute to peace and human flourishing, and, and we can work political processes to help achieve those things. But, number one, those achievements must be put in context. Of ultimate significance is what God is doing through Christ, setting all wrongs right, reconciling all things, healing the nations and defeating evil once and for all. Those things that, that are the deepest needs of the world. That's our hope. Number two, hope for achieving God's goals rests with the Spirit of God. The Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is making new creatures of those who repent and believe the good news. J Jesus followers. Through the Spirit, all kinds of new creation possibilities spring forth. Forgiveness turns enemies into friends. Generosity creates a way where there was no way. Patience and perseverance hold a marriage together. Truth-telling and accountability undo the grip of addiction. 
Gifts and creativity bring life to a community. Repentance starts a new trajectory. Empathy validates the suffering of others. Privilege is leveraged for the benefit of others. The spirit unleashed into our world, into our hearts. That's our hope. Don't misplace your hope. Faith, keep it. Hope, don't misplace it. And finally, love, do it. For people who are part of the Jesus movement, it doesn't get any more basic than that. Love God, love people, serve the world. That's how it boils down, according to Jesus. Love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another, Jesus said. That's how the world will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. And he'll do us one further. But, But anyone who's listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If Jesus were coaching us up before the game, this is what he would say. Okay, everyone, this is our game plan. But when he came into the locker room at halftime, I do wonder if if he'd raise a concern about the ways that the, the shouts of the crowd have thrown us off our game. Pointing out where we may be taking our cues from the polarizing and hateful tendencies of our society. I think he would want to make it clear. The way of belittling others and getting the last word and making snarky comments and attacking people's character instead of civilly discussing issues and instigating controversy, that that is such a lesser vision of life. It's destructive, it's dishonoring to God and to those created in God's image. It's something from which we need to repent, to turn. And believe some good news. You are set free from being a pawn in the hands of a political party. You don't have to love only those who they tell you to love. Your identity is not defined by a red jersey or a blue jersey. Now, yeah, you you can vote with a party or register with a party, but I like how Tony Evans says, if if you're committed to Christ, the most you can be is Democrat light (laughs) or Republican light because you have a higher identity and a higher calling as a Jesus follower. And and if you don't get that, well then go back and listen to the whole series again. Because there is a lot at stake. There's more of the game to be played, more life to be lived until God finally and fully brings the end of the story. As we continue to seek clarity about what that means for each of us and for us together as a community, I'll recommend two quite short books to you. One is called Scandalous Witness, a political manifesto for Christians by Lee Camps, 173 pages. And the other is Compassion and Conviction, a guide to faithful civic engagement, keyword and, uh, by Justin Gibbons, 131 pages in a discussion guide. Those might be helpful to you. I know they were for me. Let me just close by saying uh, the goal today was to provide some clarity. Uh, Give yourself some grace if it's not all clear yet, if all questions aren't answered, or give me some grace. (laughs) And the invitation, it's for all of us, but particularly if you find yourself maybe especially anxious or fearful as a result of this week, or on the other hand, if you find yourself especially confident or excited because, you know, things work out like you hope, I don't mean to trivialize fear or chastise confidence, but evaluate uh, those feelings and submit them to the Lord. And then also dive more and more deeply into 
to the story, the one that we quickly gave snapshots of the end and the beginning and the middle today, because that is the ultimate story. And, and, and if you don't know that uh, that well, that, that's okay. Continue to, to learn and to discover who God is and what God is doing in your life and in the world. And allow God's love and God's faithfulness and God's power to cast out fear as you get reoriented to God's promises. Or allow God's love and faithfulness and power to maybe relocate your confidence if you discover you're leaning too heavily on human promises. These are the kinds of things that God will show us if we truly ask him to help us live with clarity. 